Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Today in the House of our subject is true crime, serial killers in the Great White North. And a perfect guest to uh, tell us all about it. He's a retired RCMP homicide detective and forensic coroner. Uh, he also served as a sniper on the British SAS. He's trained in emergency response teams. Uh, excellent guest. His book, No Witnesses to Nothing, is uh, his first novel in the crime thriller series. And um, he kind of crosses a little bit into the paranormal as well. Um, he's also a very avid JFK assassination um uh, researcher, and uh, he's got a website. It's dyingwords.net. Gary Rogers, thank you very much for being on the show. Hey, Al, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, let's let's start out with who you are. Kind of like uh, give the listeners a little bit of a rundown on um, kind of your experience and and what you've been doing with your life before you became uh, an author. Well, I've reinvented myself a few times. I'm on my third uh, career right now. I started off as a, a Mountie, which is a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which is Canada's federal police force. And during my time with the RCMP, I, I specialized in a couple of things. Uh, one was I went into the uh, Serious Crimes Unit Criminal Investigation, or basically the Homicide Squad, because that's what we spent all our time on was investigating murders. And then I had a secondary um Specialty, and that's that I was uh, seconded to the emergency response team, or what the U.S. refers to as SWAT, Special Weapons and Tactics. So I, um, it's that is not a full-time position; it's it's an additional two year as and when required. And I trained; uh, I got some really good experience in training, and I, I specialized in being a, a sharpshooter, or a marksman, or a sniper. And uh, so I spent a, a, a career uh, with the RCMP, and that was 20 years, and most. Most of it was on the west coast of Canada, in the Vancouver area. And uh, the opportunity for uh, the position of coroner for Vancouver Island, or central Vancouver Island, came up, so I took an appointment as that, and because of my background in forensics, I, I uh, took on an awful lot of the forensic cases, you know, forensic death investigation. And then when I retired from that, my third time, I became a crime writer. And it's something that I've had an aptitude over the years, and a, and a real enjoyment. So. And now I've uh, I've been doing that several years full time, and I've had some 
reasonably good successes with, with that as well. So that's, in a nutshell, what I'm all about. <laughs> pretty, pretty amazing. Now, what, what was it like um, um, being a homicide detective and dealing with uh, killings and stuff uh, firsthand? It must have been pretty, um, um, I don't know how to say it. It must have been kind of, um, uh, you know, you're dealing with kind of the, the worst part of what humans do. Oh, some of it is really nasty. Some of the crime scenes that we've, we've investigated and had to process are just, uh, you know, the average person I don't think could, can really imagine how gruesome they are. And you build up a stomach for it. I don't watch any of the CSI shows. I know that they're tremendously popular. Um, but I've read some, quite a bit of, uh, of crime books, true crime and fiction. And, uh, my take in, in it is a lot of them, the writers don't really get the facts right. They, they don't un understand the processing, but, then of course, the most most murders are actually not that complicated to figure out. Most of them are smoking guns, and it's just a matter of picking up the pieces. And then you'll get some of the real puzzlers, which are you know the whodunits. And I've got to say that I was involved in investigating a few of them over the years that are still unsolved. And uh, maybe one day, with advances in technology, that they will be. And that must really stay with you, then, right? Like when you uh, get involved in a case and you and you're going through it, and it totally goes cold, um, uh, do you just forget about it, or does that kind of stick with you? Oh, it's always there. It's in the back of your mind. And uh, But again, you know, new stuff coming in all the time, you, you learn not to dwell on it. And you try not to take take the cases home with you. You know, I've got a great quote from uh, Joseph Wombo. Do you know who Joseph Wombo was, a crime writer from the United States, from Los Angeles area? He did Onion Field, Choir Boys, New Centurions, and that. No, I don't know it. He hasn't been writing for, for a few years, but he had the greatest line, and he said, it's it's not about how cops work on cases, it's how cases work on cops. That's where the real story is. And uh, you have to remember that the police officers are human beings just like, like anybody else, and um, post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, PTSD, is very real, and it takes a number of them down. A lot of uh, cops that have been around violence uh, over the years really have a bit of a train wreck in their own lives. You know? Oh, I bet, yeah. And and uh, like I said, to be first hand in 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 the situation, there's a lot to deal with. Um, um, so, uh, do you find it to be um, kind of a better? Um, I don't know if that's the right word, but it's it's a little bit um, better organized. Let's say in Canada with the true crime, the serial killers, and things like that, and the and the legal system as we were talking earlier as compared to the US because it's not so publicized it's like um, you don't see it on all the TV you're not watching live trials going on yeah Canada doesn't prosecute by media that's one thing I've got to say from uh, you know we were uh, off air we were discussing the OJ Simpson trial and what a fiasco that was and uh, thankfully Canada doesn't allow cameras in the courtrooms they allow reporters Obviously, it's it's open to that sketch artists, but there's no audio or visual recording live. So the, your your prosecution and defense teams, as well as the witnesses, aren't going to appear on the six o'clock news, which is a disaster in my opinion. It, it just it throws the the administration of justice into total disrepute. So we don't have that, and I don't believe we ever will. We've got a different a different legal system in the sense that we're, we're mastered by one piece of federal legislation called the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, to which all other laws bow before. And I think that the admissibility of evidence is much easier going in Canada. We don't have the uh, as much of the tendency to throw out a critical piece of evidence as a result of the technicality. Rather, we have what's a section called bringing the administration of justice into, into disrepute, which is a two-headed coin. And there's many uh, rulings now that says that to exclude a piece of evidence based upon a minor technicality, you know, the old I not crossed or, the, or dotted or the T crossed, that you would exclude it, and then that's fruit, fruit of the poison tree. We don't have that. So I, I believe that, that we've got a higher rate of, of being able to get facts in our courtrooms than, uh, than what I'm aware of in the U.S., Oh yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that. And uh, and and just for for the listeners, how do how do the miners get treated? Because um, because we had Bob Mitchell from Toronto, and uh, he was talking about the bathtub girls. I guess they'd um, they were two underage girls. I, I I can't remember if they were thirteen and fifteen or something or fourteen, sixteen, and they um, killed their mother in the bathtub. Give her a big pile. Okay. Of 
Yeah, the I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with the case, not not intricately, but I know which one you're talking about. Um, Canada's law is that you become an adult at 19 under the under the criminal code, and which is a federal legislation looks after all criminal law. For, it's like a penal code in each state, and uh, uh, it has got a uh, a waiver of responsibility at 12. At anything under 12 years old, you cannot be charged with a crime in Canada. That's uh, you know on 11 year old with uh, 364 days to go if they were to to kill somebody they cannot be prosecuted for murder so then there's a gray area getting up around 19 and that's the uh, what's referred to as a young offender between 12 and 19 can get raised at all court depending upon their level of sophistication and their their track record so it's been known that that uh, kids as young as uh, probably 16 I don't know about 15 but 16 have been raised at all court and then they're subject to the same punishment as, uh, as adults are. What brought you into um, becoming an author um, from, from doing this? Like, what, was there a certain case or a certain um, s- story that sort of drew you into writing? Well, there was. My background is that, that I've written all my life because uh, as a homicide detective or an investigator, you're doing a lot of writing. A great deal of the job is paperwork. And everything from investigation reports to um, search warrant wiretap applications to uh, forensic requests. And then I, I took on writing um, uh, articles for peer journals. I just enjoy writing. And then as a coroner, I had to write legal judgments, you know, the, the judgment as to what the official causes of death are. So you get good at technical writing. And then I had a story in me that, that happened, a true story that happened to me during the time that I was in the police force that I was, was burning to tell. And... Uh, so I, once I retired from the coroner service, I took on the the, uh, the task of writing this, and I got a few months into it, and I realized that I knew nothing about the art of fiction. It's so different to write fiction than it is to write uh, true crime. So I stopped, and I retook a number of courses, and I aligned with uh, with uh, other successful authors, and I, I learned as much as I could about the um, about the craft. So I wrote a a novel based upon actually three true crime stories blended them together and uh, it did really quite well on Amazon it went to number five um, uh, in the horror cult thing I was sandwiched between Stephen King at number number four and Dean Koontz at number number uh, six so you know it's a bit of bragging rights from that <laughs> good company but, yeah yeah good company yeah, no, so I don't mind blowing my horn about that and then it ran its course and then I, I I've since I've written two more novels I've written a true crimes book I've written a number of guides on on uh, on writing and uh, I've got another project that's on the go right now so it's had quite a bit of, uh, of writing experience now and then I also uh, for the last four years I've been uh, had a, my own blog site and it's a the, the address for any of your listeners if they want to check it out is triple w dyingwords.net dying words is all one word triple w dyingwords.net Every Saturday, I put out a blog post, and it's usually crime-related, forensic-related, because I use the tagline to the blog site, um, uh, Provoking Thoughts on Life, Death, and Writing. And then last fall, it got picked up by the Huffington Post, so I'm a regular blogging contributor. So every um, Saturday, I put out a blog post on my on my website, and then the Huff runs it uh, usually Monday, Tuesday, sometimes as late as Wednesday. So it gets really good coverage back. So my, my platform from... As a result of uh, crime writing, I was growing to quite a bit, a lot of Twitter followers and people on the mailing list, and then it leads to opportunities like this to be interviewed by uh, interviewed by you, Val. Your guides here now. What what are the eight separate guides about? Like a um, like one on one, hundred and one killer tips on thrillers. Like kind of what's what are your guides about for people? What are they going to get from it? Well, these are are the, the series of eight on the what I call no-BS guides, uh, are regard to crime fiction. And it's to, it's to take my knowledge that I've gained on this journey from learning how to write crime fiction, and I gathered the best tips that I could, and I've, I've sourced out a number of, of people who are very prominent in the, in the profession, in, anywhere from writers to publishers to um, editors to, you, you know, uh, bloggers. And so I've taken the best tips and put those together for people to follow. And so far, I've had the one published on on uh, crime on crime thrillers. And right before we started the interview here, I was just wrapping up. On my editor just sent me back um, the one on 
uh, ed- how to self-edit. That, that's a big one. There's a lot of information there. And I'm just about to finish the draft on crime scenes, and then I'll have another one on crime characters, another one on crime dialogue, and then a few on forensics, one on, on autopsies, because I've got some, probably several thousand autopsies under my belt. And uh, then another one on uh, general forensics and one on firearms. So that's what those guides are about. They're short and sweet, and, and it really is to, to somebody that's in the more into the, writing specifically for crime fiction, but it, writing goes across the board. Um, it's uh, tips on, on things that they might be able to, to improve their own craft. So that's getting back what I've, uh, what I've learned from others. And so, well, who, who, who else have been your um, inspirations, or who else do you sort of um, really like to read yourself? Well, the guy that I think is a total master is Stephen King. You know, and you know, not everybody's a King fan, and I haven't read everything he's done, but I think the guy's brilliant when it's his ability to tell a story. Um, some of the, the lesser-known people, but who are really making a, a goal on the indie circuit, is uh, Joanna Penn from uh, from London, uh, C.G. Lyons from uh, the United States. There's a real up-and-comer. Uh, coming out of uh, Massachusetts, or sorry, out of New Hampshire, Sue Coletta. We've, we've become quite good friends on the, on the Internet now. And then there's a number of really good crime writers showing up in Australia. So they're a little bit of all over. It's, it's so easy to, to get uh, to know other people in the business online because it, all it takes is just a quick comment on their blog or an email to them. I find that people are, you know, I've, I've got a fairly good profile from my background, so right away they look and said, hmm, maybe this guy's got something uh, we can learn from. So it's not hard to get introduced. And so now on your book, now this is a real, real interesting subject. We have a lot of um, paranormal listeners and we cover a lot of different subjects, um, strange and weird things. And uh, now you're no witness to nothing no witnesses to nothing. Sorry, it's the book. Right, double, double negative. No yeah, yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> that's why I couldn't say it naturally. And uh, and uh, so what's what's this about? Because I know the description is something like straight out of CSI or X Files, and uh, it's a paranormal intervention occurred. So how does that like? Uh, wow, let's let's set that. Let's talk about well, that. No. No Witnesses to Nothing is based upon a, t- a true story, the primary uh, storyline on, on an incident that happened to me in 1985. And it's a ghost story, but it's, it's a true ghost story. And uh, the title comes from, with a ghost, there's nothing to witness, so there's no witnesses to nothing. And you have to, to read the book to really see. If several times in there, the lead characters use that phrase, and then it becomes, okay, now I understand why the book's called that. But the storyline uh, is is something that happened to me and to a group of my uh, ERT emergency response team uh, members and uh, to my uh, partner and uh, one of my best friends. In during the 1970s and the to the mid mid 1980s, there was a, a man by the name of Michael Eugene Orris. He had been roaming the north, uh, the north, living as a, as a bushman, a wild man. Uh, through Alaska, the Yukon, and Northwest British Columbia, he was actually a, a draft dodger from from uh, Kansas that made his way up at, at the end of the Vietnam War and just settled in the bush. And over the course of 13 years, he went into a spiral into absolute bush madness. And the unique thing about him was he kept diaries. These were these were found, so his thoughts were being recorded. He was well known by the First Nations people, which is the Indian or the Tlingit is the name of the. Um, uh, the, the band, the peoples from that area of Canada and Alaska's north, and uh, he he was wanted for murder. He was known that he'd shot and killed another trapper. So no, this Horace wasn't a trapper. He was just a wild bushman living off of whatever he could get by by hunting and killing or breaking into cabins and stealing food. And he was he had been arrested for a murder, and he was released on on uh, lack of evidence. And he vowed never to be taken alive again and disappeared for two years. He wasn't seen until eventually he was caught inside a cabin by another so-called um, you know, trapper. And they got into an altercation and, and uh, there was no shots fired, but they sent the police out and the police from the, the local um, station were, were in a fixed-wing airplane and this horse opened fire on him with a British 303 rifle. So 
because he was well known and there was already a contingency plan for him. Now this is in March of 1985 and it's in still deep winter right on the uh, British Columbia-Yukon border in northern Canada. So we as an emergency response team, um, were, I was one of nine members on it, were tasked to go after him and locate him. And we, we caught him uh, about 80 miles south of the nearest civilization on a lake. And we were dropped off in helicopters and uh, we tried to triangulate them and, and uh, you know, to, to, put, uh, to, to box him in and order his surrender and then be in a position to respond if he would open fire on us. So myself and my partner, Mike Boudet, who also had a German Shepherd trained police dog, and a, and a third member were on a, on a point of land um, with the noonday sun on our back. And this is a, a clear but, but cool uh, winter day. And this horse is coming down the lake on a, uh, with a dog team. He's got a sled uh, powered, filled by two, uh, two dogs. And he's in between a piece of wide open water because the lake at that point is nothing but a more of a widening of a river, so there's a current. So we thought we had him squeezed between there. And the other team was chasing him towards us. And uh, well, 10 minutes to, uh, or just before noon, he broke off from, from his dog team and he took a, got on a pair of snowshoes and he took his rifle and he angled off towards us. Now he was about 500 yards out and he went into the, into the deep snow. It's chest deep snow and it's in heavy timber. And he made it in under 10 minutes during that point of time, uh, between or in that distance in, in under 10 minutes. And he circled myself, Mike Boudet with the dog and the other member, and he snuck up behind us. And I was only able to see him at the last second. And I, I yelled to my partner or radioed him, whatever, we were close together. He's right behind you. And with that, Horace let out a shot. He shot my partner in the back of the neck and killed him instantly. And then the weirdest thing happened, I've told the story many times, but, and, and, and I know there's a scientific explanation for this part, is that I went into a state of absolute hyper-awareness. I'm, I'm well-trained and I'm a reasonably good shot, but it was like detaching from my body and I, I was like watching this whole scene in slow motion and frame by frame I'm like sitting on the branch of a tree above this whole thing. And I see this horse slowly working the, the, the bolt of his 303 rifle, although I could only see through, you know, a gray wash of brush. Uh, he was 44 yards from me. And uh, I can just really only see his face, from, but I can see the motion through the brush of his, what his arms are doing. And he slowly reloads and he points the rifle at me. And then my, I have uh, an M16 uh, 5.56 uh, carbine rifle. And I just up and I took a snapshot, and uh, the next thing, horse disappeared, and and I I just snapped back into my reality, into my body, and you know, it, it was it was just a phenomenal experience. And again, I've told this many times. And uh, so anyway, it took uh, another 20 minutes before the other team came in. I I just held a position there, didn't know what what had happened to him, didn't know whether it hit him. So anyway, when the other team cautiously came in and they put an aircraft over top, they could spot him that Horace was uh, laying dead in the snow. So, um, and of course, my, my partner is also dead, and he's only 18 yards away from Horace. And when they opened, uh, well, when they, when they inspected Horace, he, he, uh, my uh, 223 or 5.56 bullet caught him right in the center of the forehead and killed him instantly. But when they, they opened the bolt on Horace's rifle, they they determined there was a live cartridge in there. He'd already reloaded. He pointed the the rifle at me, and he pulled the trigger, and the firing pin punctured his primer, and the round failed to go off, and my life was saved because of this. So, like the, a lot of people say, it puts hair, you know, the hair in their back and their neck standing up when, when they hear that. But this goes on and becomes str uh, much stranger yet for for the legend from the First Nations as to what took place. Okay. Wow. So, uh, how did that change you? Well, I I was affected to some degree by PTSD after it was, uh, you know, not not to greatest that it affects some people, but mine was probably more grief and, and and shock than anything else. You know, putting your partner in a body bag—that's the toughest thing I've ever done. That's uh, that, that, that's beyond description. But where this where 
I always wanted to find out what, what the truth was, what, what happened here. Now, where this gets into the macabre or the branching along with the paranormal is that the First Nations, the Clinket people, uh, knew of Oris, and they, they, they had actually warned the police that day of the, the, from the police station where we took off. There was a elderly lady came into into the police station and warned them that the Boris who we were going after, she did a vision, and that um, he was the manifestation of the Kushtaka, the Kushtaka, who is their mythical creature, the wild man of the woods. That's well known, and many many First Nations have got this similar creature, Buklas, and um, up up there they call it the Kushtaka. No, this is a m- mythical shapeshifter, in, according to their their storytelling, their legends who um, will occupy a human body, and it thrives off the, the energy of other people. So its purpose, it, it's evil, it's deceitful, and it's deadly, and its purpose is to, to capture human souls, and that's what it provide, That's what it feeds its energy off. So in the, that story, if you look at it objectively from the First Nations, it's, it served their, their people well because it kept the individual from wandering away and going out in the bush and getting lost, and then the others go and find them. Because the thing is, if you're out and alone, the Kushtaka will get you. So it was sort of a fear from mythology that kept people in line. However, the the Kushtaka, as a as a mythical shapeshifter, is capable of doing things like this. It can can travel in 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 deep snow. It can approach like this horse made it by 18 yards away from from a police dog and a very experienced police officer on snowshoes or heavy bush without being detected, and he snuck up behind us. Now. Where it gets even weirder is that the area that we were in was where the old village of um, Teslin. This would happen on Teslin Lake in the, in the Yukon. And when the Alaska Highway went through, they moved the village from where we were down at the narrows of the lake up to where the highway went through. So the remnants of the old village are still there. And up to pre-1940s, when the um, when the old village was there, they had a burial island, which is right across from where this took place. And this is not just um, myth, this is actual factual. But they had a very powerful shaman, uh, his, his uh, tribal name was Cash Clow, who was buried in, they, they don't bury people under the ground in their customs, they put them in bent boxes and put them into rock pavilions. And on the burial island, uh, there's a strategic spot where they enter it and it faces north, and it's, the ro- it's a very rocky beach so this is a spot where we have to if you're going to beach and go up and stay on the island um, or enter the island to where the mortuary is you, you have to come by this point so because it was strategic they buried their shaman on a, a particular location which is the best lookout point now what happened the night before we went to get uh, to go after Oris the um, uh, see all this is recorded in tracks in the snow and plus a spotter plane that was the surveillance plane that was uh, that was watching him he actually camped overnight right on that strategic point so basically he was camped right on the shaman's grave right on Cashflow's grave and of course the legend of the, the natives is that this was so offensive to the shaman that the shaman and they were in a spiritual battle between it's a long-standing thing the good with evil you know the shaman and the kushtaka battling it out for the powers of souls and that uh, their legend is that the shaman intervened to um, have ores killed in his human manifestation by using me <laughs> hmm. So go figure, but that's uh, that's what history is recorded. So, well, when this happened, wh- where were you in your mindset before this? Did you have any sort of belief in in any of these, you know, the um, uh, First Nations ideas or or, or even uh, paranormal? Did you have any of that re- experiences before? No, I never had any experiences, but I've always been. You know, I've been a voracious reader, and I always had some interest in it. Wondering, okay, where do these stories come? What's the science behind it? And the, excuse me. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A big believer in science. And um, so, no, I didn't have any real preconceived ideas, although, I've, you know, I was very skeptical about ghosts and the paranormal, but I've sure heard a lot of stories from what I would say are, you know, thoroughly normal, rational people that have had incidents that are beyond description, and mine's one of them. So I don't can't speak to, to you know, this the paranormal intervention from the shaman and the kushtaka, but what I can speak to is my research into what happened to me to the so-called out-of-body experience. And this is partly what, what the book No Witnesses Nothing makes an attempt to explain what the science and the spirituality is behind the human soul. Um, I think that we're all equipped as humans with an, an ability to go into a hyper state of awareness when we're under extreme danger or extreme duress. And it's it, there's no question that we've got a number of different levels of our consciousness. You know, that we have our normal consciousness, like you and I are in at the, at the moment, and we're, um, you know, having a, a normal conversation. And meanwhile, there's a subconscious going on inside us that's causing us to breathe and our circulatory system to, to work and our, um, our repair system, our immunes, and all the other things that are in there. And then when we go to sleep, we go into another state of consciousness, and then you have... Two, two other states. One, one is, is a hyper-consciousness, which is you're throwing into, and then there's a deep sense of being able to put yourself into an altered state of consciousness, is what the shamans over the years and, and some of the, uh, the very trained people in, uh, say, the, the monks in meditation, so they can put themselves into an altered state of consciousness in order to get uh, information, wisdom, and creative um, suggestion and that. So mine was, was no different than the person that, see, that sees their light flash before their eyes. I was so so tra- traumatized when I realized this guy was behind us and got the drop that I it was a natural human reaction and I went into that state of, of I call it hyper-awareness. It was like watching it from above. And that was how I was able to react to it. So that, that's my scientific explanation for it. Hmm. So has this made you um, change some of your views on paranormal after death and all that? Oh, yeah, yeah, and then, and see, this happened in 1985, so I carried on in, in the police force and, and uh, uh, for a number of years after that, another 13 years or something, and, and uh, I, I took it a lot more to listening to people when they, when they tell you things, you know, and, and I've heard a number of stories. And then going into the coroner service, when I was really dealing with that, you know, you're dealing with that every day, because I was an investigative field coroner, I'm not a... I'm outraged at the death scenes, and then you have to interact with the families. And some of the stories you hear uh, about people with premonitions and contact with the dead after, and you know, these people aren't nuts. This is coming from somewhere. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously siding with science, but I keep a, an open mind that there's um, that there's far more going on out there than than a lot of us understand. And I think that the state of human consciousness is probably the next. Uh, big leap in in advancements in our in our species. We're going to be able to learn to do more with our minds. 
No. Well, hopefully, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Well, some that are sick, they're hopeless. But <laughs> yeah, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, but how, how was it in the police force afterwards? Like, did you talk to a lot of other people and tell them about this, or did you keep it quiet? No, I kept it. I was held in a bit of a reverence. Like, I'm known as the guy who pulled off the amazing shot. And, and then, of course, uh, not too long after, I was called upon to do much the same thing in a different situation where there was no paranormal overtone, just a sad, sad state of affairs. Um, but members would come and talk to me. Some would be really cautious about me, but I didn't go blowing my horn about it. But if they wanted to talk, I would, because I think that therapy is probably the best thing you can do, is to talk things out and get other exposure rather than keeping it bottled up. And uh, then uh, other members that would go into you know, become involved in high-stress situations, we would have a, a debriefing team and a counseling, and I offered my services based upon my experience to, to actually more go and listen to them as opposed to, to counsel them. So. And, and so when you got into the uh, coroner service, uh, did, did you sort of ever have any experiences or, or feelings with the um, uh, dead bodies? No, nothing, nothing physical or, or metaphysical with a person dealing with a dead body. I never had any, any, anything. A um, couple of times when you're alone in the morgue with them and they do some gassing off, it's a little freaky to hear a noise coming from a dead body. But that's a, that's a <laughs> total, total uh, physical response. You get used to that after a while. Yeah, but, yeah. But, <laughs> but, but it still freaks you out. Oh, I'm sure. But, but, but no, I can't say that I've had any any personal experience. The only one that I've had that buys explanation. On, and it was a Tesla-like incident where I, I had this so-called out-of-body experience. Now, I believe that, that that is scientifically explainable, but for the life of me, I can't explain how that guy was able to, to make it that quickly in that deep of snow in those conditions uh, and come by. My partner, who was very skilled and had a, had a police dog and without being, being seen and, uh, or detected in the First Nations, say, well, it simply was the Kushnikar. He just shifted shape. He drifted right by you. Don't you know anything? You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Were you paying attention? <laughs> yeah. Didn't you get the memo on the Kustika? Yeah. yeah. Kustika. What, what? What? So what happens to it? So it, it's it's going around looking for for souls. Is that what you're saying? That's what that's what the mythology is. This thing is the personification of of, of evil. So that's what it is. It's, it's evil, deceitful, and deadly, and it steals souls for its energy. And it's able to to live inside. However, no witnesses to nothing is that the, I took the, what if this First Nations um, account was real? What would the follow-up be? What would the story be? What would happen to the Kushtakam? What would happen to the, the people that were involved in this? And um, so it, it goes dormant. It can live dormant inside for years until something you know, sets it off, and then, or, its, or its energy runs low, and then it has to go on a quest for more energy. And I guess it would just live on forever. Well, unless it gets... Uh, so when you shot this guy, um, what happens to the, the, the Kushtika? Well, in this in this time, in, where it is in the book, the Kushtika is laying low, and it, it actually um, it, it, it manifests itself in another police officer. And that's part of the story as to what, what's happening now when this thing is after a particular member to hunting them down. Which is the thrill of the chase? That, that that's the fictionalized point of the part of uh, part of the book. Uh, but it makes for a freaky story. It's good. I've had some really good comments about it. It's been well read, and um, it, it 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 seems to do its job. And as to what they call in fiction, you have to uh, suspend the disbelief. So when you're into it, if it's your type of thing, because some people got right into it. That's that's the comment you can ever get for your book is when somebody goes, "Wow, I couldn't put that down," and then you know you've done your job. Wow. And so now, are you continuing to write this sort of format now? Well, I took the, I, the, the principal character in the Witnesses to Nothing, other than, than the members who were involved in the original shooting, it transforms into modern day, and it, it relates into a murder investigation that's, that's based upon another true story, and that's two police informants that were murdered and have never been, their murders have never been solved, and it's suspected, they were drug informers, it's suspected that there might have been a rogue element of police officers that were involved in killing them because of the extreme MO. So I use a fictionalized um, protagonist who's a female RCMP officer who's uh, part First Nations because I, I really find that the First Nations 
culture and the spiritual spirituality very interesting, and it's it's something that really deserves to be shared with other people. So I use her as the protagonist, and she's investigating this murder, and then gets caught up in this whole uh, paranormal um, quest for souls. And so the the book ends with a bit of, of a suspension in it. It explains what was behind the, the murders, which which ties back into the paranormal, and then it le- leaves it wide open for a sequel. So I wrote another. I started writing a paranormal sequel to it, and then I've had. Uh, some advice from other writers and an agent that I should stay away on the next one on the true paranormal or make make reference to it. So I wrote this one. It's called um, No Life Until Death, and it's on the black market human organ trafficking uh, underworld. And it takes the same fictional police officer, and she's investigating the uh, the uh, disappearance and then a found body. And again, I use the Vancouver, British Columbia area as a setting because I'm familiar with it. And it's you know it's widely known around the world from being an Olympic city, and uh, unbeknownst to her, the group of targeters is tra- targeting her daughter um, because of her r- rare blood type. So it's uh, it's it's the manuscript is clean, polished, and is ready for um, for publication. Is just now being shopped out for publication. Wow, is that sort of a, a an issue still? Um well, in Canada or the U.S., as you know, the trafficking of body parts and things like that. Well, it's it's very real. There's there's no question about that. The amount of of um, money that's involved in the underworld. Now, to say that they're being harvested in Vancouver might be a stretch. I use the Philippines because the Philippines is a very modern um, society in regards to its medical ability, but still a very um, black market. Um, corrupt uh, society and there there's a, n- a number of, of things go on where people do what's called um, uh, uh, it's like or- organ tours, uh, tourism for for trafficking anyway you can go to the to the Philippines and you can buy a, a kidney or whatever on the black market you'll pay through the most part but it's it's readily available wow. and then it gets into things like for years until China was opening opening up, they were actually uh, scheduling executions of prisoners based upon transplant demand. So they'd identify a, tr- a transplant donor as a prisoner, and then when the, when a um, recipient was identified, they'd arrange the execution of the, the prisoner in order to uh, to harvest the organ at the right time. You know, that's that's not something that's fiction. That's true. Wow. And then of course everybody knows about the one you know this, the urban legend of waking up in a bathtub with. Uh, with one kidney removed. Well, I don't know about that, but there certainly is a lot of people in, in let's say, India, Pakistan, uh, throughout there that were, will willingly sell one of their kidneys. And what, what are they getting for it? Is there a large amount of money? Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it, on the black market, the, the you can't touch a kidney uh, under about 50 grand, and um, it goes upwards from there, especially if you're getting into the, the rare blood types. I based mine, I did a lot of research into this, so it's not just I'm just grabbing these figures out of the air. So I used the figure of mine with the family that's that's trying to source the kidney. And the, the book, No Life Until Death, follows this uh, California des- uh, a desperate family from California that turned to the black market, and they were going to pay a half million bucks um, to save their daughter. In fact, the, the tagline of the, uh, the book goes, um, how far would you go to save your child? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that stuff's going on. Wow, I didn't realize it was so big. Um, so, I mean, I guess, um, I guess, because the the legal uh, or the um, I was going to say the medical community can't really um, fill the demand. Oh, the the demand so far outweighs the supply. I don't have any of the figures right in front of me, but some of them, the uh, the World Health Organization did a study several years ago. And indicated that the black market um, human organ trafficking around the world is somewhere in the two billion dollar range, and it's escalating. And there's just within North, the United States alone, there's you know there's thousands of people on the waiting list for various organs, and the majority of them are going to die before they uh, because so, it just isn't. The so, so we're talking um, probably the the wealthier people that are a- able to buy more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's not something in a. Oh, wow, and well, so I, can, I was just going to say, is this going on everywhere? Like, so, so people from our, like North America, for instance, are buying parts through countries like Philippines and stuff. Absolutely, yeah. But the prime ones are the Philippines is the number one. 
Then there's uh, some of the other uh, countries are India, Pakistan, Turkey is big. Um, but the big big market is the Philippines. The American influence in the Philippines, they're, they're very modern. They've got a tremendously advanced medical system in the Philippines. Yeah. Well, how do you know what you're getting is real? <laughs> <laughs> I guess you don't. I guess like anything else in the black market, you go and buy a bag of pot, how do you know what you're getting? Yeah. That's, I guess the luck of the draw. But with the way I, that I use the, um, uh, the premise in, in No Life Until Death is that uh, it was a referral. See, Palo Alto, California has Stanford Medical Center. It's one of the largest uh, transplant uh, centers in, in North America. So these people were from there, and they were, their daughter has got uh, what's called AHES, is a, is a very rare kidney uh, disorder, which is going downhill fast, and she has a rare blood type, so she's almost impossible to get a, get a replacement for. So she's referred from a urologist at Stanford Medical Center to another um, known colleague in the Philippines to arrange this black market. And that's not beyond the realm of possibility either. Wow. That's, I find that very interesting. It, not a, um, I don't think it's a good thing. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, so when do you? You don't know when that book will be out, eh? No, the the, the um, manuscript is is done, completed, with its final edits and polished, and it's uh, just now starting to shop it out for for publication. I may just just self publish myself because, quite frankly, some people are having so much. Uh, um, results in success in doing the self-pub now that uh, used to be a day when self-pub uh, you know was indie authors was telling you you can't get published by a real publisher so you turn to that but the days have changed so I've got about nine self-pub things out on the internet on, uh, or sorry on Amazon which is the internet which are um, you know doing fairly well and there's a little system on how to cheat Amazon's uh, uh, algorithms and I've put a few up that have gone to number one in their category but but it's been on on promoting them as free as opposed to to selling them. Yeah, yeah. I think I, the world's changing in that format. You know, the uh, uh, like newspapers and books and all that. Um, everybody's reading them online or in their Kindle and their iPad and things like that. Oh yeah, yeah. It really is the uh, the print. Uh, and I, I don't believe that print books are are ever going to go away. I, personally, I much prefer reading in print than, than on screen. But. Uh, the, that's the way the world's going to, and so you know, reading from not just on PC screens, but uh, down to tablets and uh, smartphones. And that's, yeah, that's yeah. So you, you've got if you have a publication, you have to have it available in digital format. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I do a lot on that now. Uh, I mean, the, the cell phone's a little too small for me, <laughs> for my yeah, eyes. Yeah, I'm with you on that. <laughs> but I can do. I don't even like using the cell phone. To be honest with you, but yeah, it's hard sometimes. You know, uh, my yeah. sight. Um, but um, the iPad, I can I, I can do. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Books are. Um, it's nice to have the the product in your hand. You know. Yeah. yeah there's just nothing like the paper. I'm just looking at my computer screen here right now, and uh, I've got the well, this newest guide that's going out onto Amazon on on self-editing. And the nice thing about it is that I can just click buttons and put it away. I don't have to have to wait and wait for a conventional publisher and then the change. I can integrate graphics with it now, and it's it's a really cool uh, method of publishing, you know. So, and then of course when you self-publish with print on demand with Amazon's CreateSpace or uh, Instaspark or one of those, um, you can easily put out a print book on your own. That's no problem. But the, the one caution I've got to anybody that's going to that's that's putting out products on, on self-publishing, you've got to be really clean on your copy because the market's too sophisticated to put up with junk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then and people have no problem letting their opinions be known. <laughs> oh, God, you get roasted so bad on on uh, out there in your on your reviews if you're not good, but, and, and then you've got no control on yeah. this at all. So you're putting yeah. yourself out to the world. Well, even if they, even if it's good, you you, you can get roasted. I mean, <laughs> oh sure, <laughs> it's not the same as the, the old world. It's um, it's a free for all sometimes. Yeah, yeah, say you do the yeah. wrong thing, you know. Uh, do you think is there, so? Is this a, a lot of um, serial killers still around right now, like in Canada? Well, I've done a little bit of research into serial killers on my blog site. I've written a few blogs on them. Yeah, I I think that they're 
there's probably the statistics are there's around 300 of them of, of operation in North America at any given time. Um, I can't say that I personally dealt with a serial killer. I dealt with a number of what we call mass killers, you know, who've killed more than one one person, but it's been in in a, a particular event. Not, not the true serial killer who's stalking and, and is methodical about it. But I certainly have worked on some homicides that have been caused by serial killers. And uh, uh, that those monsters, that is a uh, abnormality on its own, and it seems to always been around, and I don't think it's ever going to go away. So what? But what are the odds, really, of getting uh, caught by a serial killer? <laughs> oh, just just astronomical. Uh, I did a I did a blog post that uh, a couple of years ago, and the title was how uh, how to avoid being murdered by a serial killer. So I actually worked out the statistics on, on it based upon uh, you know facts and recorded homicides from from you know from the FBI or the uh, the RCMP's uh, databanks, and you've got like. Well, let's say there's around 450 million people in North America when you consider United States, Mexico, and Canada. And with 300 ki killers on the loose and the recorded number of homicides that serial killers are only responsible for like 0.01% of the, the known homicides. And the homicide rate, even in a prolific area, is 1 in 100,000, you know, in a, in a dangerous place. So and you kind of do the math and go down from there. It's just, just sort of remotely... Um, improbable that you're going to be murdered by a serial killer and really the vast majority of victims it comes down to them being a product of their environment they put themselves in a high risk um, in the street sex trade workers the uh, uh, people from from certain classes of society hitchhikers that sort of thing so they're vulnerable people to begin with so yeah what's the most common serial killer is it you think it's a male or a female Oh, male, I'm sure. But I think female serial killers are really rare. There's only a couple that I know of that, that come to mind, but compared to, I don't know what percentage is, maybe one in a hundred? That's a long shot. And it would be female? Yeah, yeah. Certainly it's, here it's more. A, it's a male quirk. Males are much more violent uh, uh, in the species, whereas uh, females are more crafty. You know, if you're going to get murdered by a female, it's going to be well planned out, with the exception of you know the the violent domestic things, and those are usually fueled by some sort of substance. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty pretty strange. The, uh, but the black widow is is definitely a phenomenon. Yeah. And, uh, so who do you think who who is the um, for you um, who is the biggest serial killer you know of um, for Canada? Oh, it would be Robert Picton, Willie Picton in Vancouver, who I know a number of the members and the forensic people that dealt with that. If, if your your listeners aren't aware of it, it's the case from Vancouver in um, the mid-2000s where Picton had lured, well, it's known 49 people, 49 different um, women from the what's called the downtown east side of Vancouver, that's the uh, the drug and sex trade workers, back to his pig farm on, the, on a suburb of Vancouver. Then uh, he would... Um, Murdered them, sexually abused them. You know, he was a necrophiliac, and and then he would um, uh, cut them up with a with a sawzall, with an electric sawzall, and then feed the remains to his pigs. The most uh, prolific serial killer, I think, that Canada has had. Oh, that's crazy! Uh, whatever yeah, happened, well, that's, did he, he that's, got caught, right? Yeah, he got caught, and eventually um, he got careless, as he put in his own thing, and they. They did a two-year forensic grid search of the pig farm. Can you imagine going through uh, pig manure for, for you know, day after day after day on a on a small grid search, sifting it, looking for chips of bone and teeth? But eventually, they found the DNA of twenty-some women. And uh, to Pickton's admission, he he uh, confessed to an undercover cop, and he said he did forty-nine. He was just waiting to do his fiftieth, but he got sloppy and got caught. So, so he's now doing. Uh, life in prison never to see the day again but there's been a few others uh, there's an active serial killer or killers which is working in northern British Columbia there's a famous case called the Highway of Tears it's a stretch of a fairly remote road through northern British Columbia that I don't know 30, 40 maybe even up to 50 women have gone missing and, and some of the remains have been found over the years I worked in a couple of those cases that are still unsolved Wow, and 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 so that's been going on for quite a long time. Uh, yeah, that's been going on since the seventies. 
So this that, that's got to have more than one serial killer involved then. I would I would say so, yeah. You know, that's a long but time. But, it, but it's not that many individual murders. There, there's there's somebody up there, some people up there who are doing more than one, for sure. The, the odds just have, have to be like that. Do you think there's a reason behind that? Well, some of these serial killers are, you know, they're they're just psycho psychopaths, not psychotic in the sense they don't know what they're doing. But a lot of them are, are creatures of opportunity, and because they get away with it, they'll do it again. But those women up there, for the most part, are transients, and they've been disappearing while hitchhiking. So some of them, a number of them, are from the First Nations community, and you know they're addicted to drugs, alcohol, and they're. Just their societal um, tendencies are that they'll jump, just jump in a pickup with some stranger. Wow. I think that's, that's what's going on. Wow. It's not a good those thing. Those things, both stranger to stranger ones, and the crimes of opportunity are so hard to solve. Uh, yeah, because they um, there's no pattern to fall necessarily follow. No, no, it's a random case of randomness. Although there's certain MOs, but some of these people. Uh, you know, the killers are very uh, sophisticated in their ability to get rid of the of remains. You know, there's such wilds out there that the chances of finding a body, if it's if it's well hidden, are very difficult. And to a T, very few serial killers ever confess to anybody out in the, on the street. So they're almost always loners, and uh, they're transient by nature. And but but a number of them, once they've been caught, have confessed. You know, a, good, a good example of a serial killer who confessed was uh, in Seattle, the Green River Killer, Gary Richway. Right. He did around 50 women in there, too. Yeah. And the only reason he got caught in DNA eventually, and the only reason he confessed was to avoid the death penalty. In, in his words, he said he was absolutely terrified of dying himself. He'd seen too many other people do it. Wow. You know, this, um, and I guess they'll just keep on coming, you know. Yeah, yeah. They just uh, in northern British Columbia community in the past two years they just nipped a serial killer in the bud after three of them. He would have kept on going. That guy would never stopped. And again, he got uh, got a little sloppy and and uh, was picked up by uh, by a forest ranger who saw him down a uh, a road in a in a snowy time that was out of place and followed his tracks back and went and checked and he still was the tracks in the snow and he found the body. And he recorded the plate number or something. They nailed that guy. Wow. So how many of these serial killers are actually caught, you know, just the first when they first started before they get really sophisticated? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's one of those things. Um, well, it's certainly been interesting. Um, how, do, how do people get a hold of you and what's, uh, give out your information? Yeah, okay, well, it's, uh, Gary Rogers. It's, uh, it's two R's in Gary and a D in Rogers, uh, the Irish spelling of Rogers. And my website is www.dyingwords.net. Dying words is one word, .net. And uh, so that's on the website. There's lots of information on there about forensics and links for other writers. And some, I've got about 140 blog posts up now that I put up over time. So there's some, some kind of cool stuff. So I, I go with the tagline, provoking thoughts on life, death, and writing. So I kind of cover the, the three ends of those. And uh, I'm not beyond trying to stir up a bit of controversy. <laughs> and uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, very, very active on Twitter, and it's at the at sign, Gary Rogers, and then the numeral one, Gary Rogers one. And then my email, if anybody wants to get a hold of me, is well available either on the website or the, uh, or the, um, uh, or Twitter. That and I've got a Facebook site too, but uh, but I'm not, that, I'm not as much on on social media as some of the other other writers are. I spent my, my time trying to produce content as yeah. opposed to playing around. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It can take a lot of your time. So, mm -hmm. Well, um, it's been an interesting hour. Thank you very much for taking some time and talking with us. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you all. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you! This has been a production of the Z-Talk Radio Network. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.